Tonight we're going to be in a very familiar passage of Scripture. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. I don't know about you, but the more time I spend reading and studying the Bible, the more I realize that my success as a Christian has little or nothing to do with me and everything to do with God. The Bible's pages are full of truth about God and His creatures. Now, God has a plan for this world. It's obvious. And God has a plan for His people. God will never be caught off guard. He will never be surprised, late, or in trouble. God dwells, as the Scripture says, in unapproachable light, in perfection, in glory. He is unique and separate from his creation. He doesn't need or depend on anybody. He is never worried or freaked out. He is God. And as God, he has always existed and will never cease to exist. Now, why make such a statement, you may ask? Well, good question. Because all too often in our society, I believe, be it secular or sacred, God is viewed as nothing more than an aging, outdated religious cult figure, totally irrelevant and powerless as deity. Man, on the other hand, has been elevated to the new God status, having evolved from an accident in the universe, which is believed, by the way, to have always existed, is now believed man to be the creator of God, which served him as nothing more than a psychological coping mechanism that at the time answered the life-old question of existence and the obvious harmonious complexities of life. I read a book this past year, and the name of the book is Boiling Point. And the authors, George Barna and Mark Hatch, give us some interesting insights to what Americans believe. In a national survey of over a 1,000 uh, adults from 18 and older randomly success, uh, selected throughout the nation, the Barna Research Group has supplied us with some very interesting data. In the chapter titled, What Americans Believe, they divided up a few components but we'll look at three. First of all, we'll look at what Americans believe about life. Uh, those who were surveyed were surveyed those who agreed strongly with, disagreed strongly, all the way to born-again Christians to not born-again Christians. Belief about life, number one, that is that you can lead a full and satisfying life without pursuing spiritual maturity. Those who were non-believers, non-born-again, there was 55% said yes to this. Interestingly enough, those who claimed to be born again, there were 28% who said yes to this. Also, another belief about life is that you are still trying to figure out the purpose and meaning for your life. Those who were non-believers, there were 49%. And of the born-again Christians, there were 36% who still haven't figured out what life is about. Now, beliefs about the Bible, we did pretty good. Those who believe that it's totally accurate in all its teachings, 43% of non-believers, non-born again, believe this. 85% of believers believed in this. 
also believes about the Bible. The Bible teaches that God helps those who help themselves. And 81% of the folks who did have no religious faith believed that this was a true statement. And surprisingly enough, 68% of Christians believed this to be the truth that the Bible teaches. On beliefs about sin, evil, and salvation... It says, if a person is generally good or does enough good things for others, they will earn a place in heaven. 65% of the people who were non-believers believed in this. And 31% of born-again Christians came to believe this fact. Now, tonight, we're going to look at one of the most famous passages in the Bible. Romans 8, 28-39. And we'll hope to bring some clarity... In, in, a, in a world, secular or Christian, that tends to shift not based upon what the Word of God says, but based upon popular opinion. Look with me at verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Let's pray. Lord, what a beautiful passage you have laid before us. Wrought by your Holy Spirit. Bathed in your love. Lord, there has been such great confidence in this passage for many of us for many years. But Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage, you would reveal your truth. Lord, that you would show us things. Lord, correct us. Encourage us, Lord. Enliven our spirits with the truth. We commit this time to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I notice a few of you are coughing out there. I'll consider those amens tonight. I don't know what blew through town, but if you hear any strange noises, <clears throat> coughings, just pretend that I didn't do it. Okay, and we'll get through the evening. Verse 28, it says, We know that all good things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. This verse has been one of the greatest comforts in the Christianity Especially those Christians who are going through hard times. How many of you have leaned upon this through rough times? What a tremendous verse. Dr. R.A. Torrey has correctly stated that this verse has been a soft pillow for the tired heart. But it has also been one of the most misunderstood verses in Christendom. Now, question. Why has this verse been so misunderstood? I'm glad you ask. Plain and simple, it's because of what I would call Christian superstition. Wait a minute. Don't get up and leave. By the way, we have a camera watching you. It will bill you if you leave the service too early. Wait a minute. What are you saying? Christians aren't superstitious. We're Bible thumpers. We have the absolute truth, David. We live and breathe in the Word of God. Well, you maybe you do at church and at night in your quiet time and when you're in Bible studies and even during the day. But you are human 
And I'm going to list a few examples of what I would claim to be Christian superstitions. And I think you might find a few that resonate with some of your own sentiments. Here's one for you. As long as I go to church, God will bless me. You ever think that? Well, let's not go to church today, honey. Well, I don't know. Things have been going pretty good. And we've been going to church pretty often. We better not miss. Seems to be a little more bit money in the uh, banking account. Here's another one for you. If I pray and read my Bible every day, God will bless me. Here's another one. As long as I am a good person, my life will turn out okay. Now, how common is that? Even among non-believers. Here's one. Bad things happen to people who deserve it. Unlike me. It's just unfortunate when bad things happen to me. If something bad happens to me, it's the devil who did it. It must be the devil at work. Surely there must be some type of satanic attack. You know, I was almost tempted to think that when I got sick the other day, when I was preparing for this sermon, knowing that I, knowing that I would get up here and preach, you know, I, I was almost tempted to go back to the old thought of, well... If the devil's trying this hard, it must be a good sermon that's coming this week. (laughs) Even preachers have them. Here's another one. If something bad happens to me, it's God trying to get my attention. I don't know how many times I've bumped my head on something. I said, oh, well, Lord, I haven't been thinking of you lately. It's the truth. And I don't know if you know this, but if you don't have any hair on your head, you hit everything. Your head is like, hair is like an antenna that says, don't go any further. Here's another one. If something bad happens to me, it's because I'm paying for my sins, either present or past. I knew I shouldn't have had that extra glass of milk. I've been up all night. Lord, I'm sorry. You know? Okay, here's another one. If you find, here's the one that we all like. If you find a $100 bill in the church parking lot, God is blessing me. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) Now, the person that lost a $100 bill is thinking, well, Lord, you're trying to teach me a lesson to try to make me more responsible. It's like the list goes on forever, and you get the point. It seems that there are, we're bound to find an answer for everything that goes on in our lives, aren't we? We need the answer. We've got to find out a reason for it. One thing we know for sure is that the popular opinion, even Christian popular opinion, doesn't always represent biblical truth. At this point, we need to bring in some facts that we know to be true about this world. First of all, we live in a fallen world, don't we? This is not God's original intention. It is not the original creation. We have murder, theft, abuse, hatred, violence, rebellion against God, false religion, and so on. And the list goes on, doesn't it? It's amazing how brutal mankind can be to one another. Mankind is sinful. Bad things happen to good and bad people. The rain falls on the good and the bad alike. God is our creator, 
God is sovereign and God loves us and has a plan for us in this world. All of these statements are true. Now let's look at what God is saying in this verse. And we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Look at the phrase, and we know. This phrase supposes that the we in this verse have an understanding of the person and nature of God experientially. That is to say that it assumes that this group of people that he's writing to, this group, this we, has an understanding has, and has experienced God. Notice two other phrases here. To those who love God and to those who are called. This identifies for us that this stated truth belongs solely to the believer. This is a child of God. This is not a promise to the whole world, to everybody who's living on the planet. Remember, the world remains in rebellion against God even today. This refers to those who have been born of his spirit and who now, in like fashion, are able to call out upon him and love him, those who have been called by his name. This is who this verse refers to. Now, all things work together for good, right? Now, this is what it does not mean. It does not mean that evil is good. It's evil. Evil will always be evil. And if something evil happens to you, it doesn't mean that you have to stand up and go, well, praise the Lord, you know. No, it was evil. It was bad. It was a tragedy. It doesn't mean that your sin is good. Well, since God's going to turn this out to good, I'll make a real good job of this one. I'll really sin it up tonight. No. Sin is always wrong. It's always sin. Unfortunate circumstances in this world are not thought to be good. They're thought to be tragic. Persecution for our faith is not fun. It's not to be looked for. It's not to be pleasurable. However, it can happen. And temptation to sin as well is never fun. When bad things happen, it doesn't mean that bad things are good. Take a drink. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> this antihistamine makes my mouth dry. Or a guilty conscience, I don't know. <laughs> Depending on what superstition. Okay, this is what it does mean. God takes everything that happens in the believer's life and turns it into something good. Whether it's good, evil, it doesn't matter. God will take all things that happen to his children and turn them into good. That means the good, the bad, the ugly. The phrase in here, to work together, uh, the Greek word there is synergio, which comes or is derived from the English word synergism, the working together of various elements to produce a greater than an often completely different form, the sum of each element acting separately. In the physical world, the right combination of otherwise harmful chemicals can produce substances that are extremely beneficial. Take, for instance, ordinary table salt. Uh, It's composed of two poisons, sodium and chlorine. So what is the good? We know that the evil is not the good. What is the good? The answer is in the phrase in this verse, called according to his purpose. God has always 
been and is always will be the great initiator on this planet. He will always act justly and rightly, and his purposes and plans are always the perfect and the right thing. We never need to question his motives. God's purposes go far beyond anything that we could ever think or imagine. Our lives as humans here on this planet in our daily little path that we trod are dull and mundane in comparison to the greater plans of our Creator. I'm amazed at the way at times we shake our fists at God. How many of you ever been disappointed with God? I'm sorry, you shouldn't have raised your hand. That was a trick. Um, <laughs> wow, there were so many. <laughs> you, you put your hope in a certain superstition about him, and he doesn't come through for you, and you're bummed out completely, and you get disappointed with him. And when I, when I see that potential in myself and others on this planet, it reminds me of a little ant at the bottom of your foot that's looking up at you and, and it turns up on its hind legs and puts its little pinchers out like it's going to do something. Hey, don't step on me, man. Don't get in my way. I'm thinking, come on, you're an ant. You're totally delusional at this point. Why don't you just run off? But in the same way, in our own little world, with our own little tracks, it's easy for us to get disappointed with God because He's not doing the things that we want Him to do. But actually, His purposes, because we are His creation, His creatures, are dynamic, huge, and wonderful. Now, here's the contrast. What motivates my plans and actions? And what is my driving concern when making decisions? If most of us were to be truthful, I believe that the majority of our decisions we make are based on the question, how does it affect me? Now, those of you who are moms, I think you have a little better than the rest of us dads. Don't even pretend on this one. (laughs) On all the decisions of how this affects me, I can give you the best example of all, and that is whenever my Son comes into the room with a bad, dirty diaper. Now he's at the stage where he's sort of potty training, getting it pretty good, and then blowing it really bad. <laughs> Dad, I went, I went to the potty. I went on the potty. Oh, great, son. Uh, how come you don't have any pants on? And what's that stuff all over your... And I went potty in the hallway too, Daddy. <laughs> Carly! The decision I make here, obviously, is best for me. I need to leave the room and forget that I saw what happened and just go on. If I'm questioned, just sort of... I thought he always ran around like that. I don't know. This, my friends, is the lowest level of existence in the Christian life. It, more often, is a sign that we are spiritually immature. If all of our decisions are based upon how this affects me, it's a a real indicator that we're not where we should be or where we could be. We're still living on a very 
low plane. And since we're talking about my youngest son, Hudson, I'll use him as an illustration. Um, I paid for the kids. I don't mind using them for illustrations. No. (laughs) If they don't like it, they can go on Oprah when they get old enough. (laughs) Yes, my dad was a preacher. And uh, Okay. In the infant stage, he was totally helpless. A beautiful little squawking redhead kid who reared his head back and just screamed at the whole world. We had never seen a kid like him. But he was helpless. I had a sense that if you left him alone, he'd probably die. Even though he could scream pretty loud, which was, you know, a good thing for a little kid to have. Now, when he moved into the toddler stage, I would characterize his actions as being reckless. You ever seen the little toddlers running around, grabbing everything, putting stuff in their mouth, running by stuff, grabbing at knives as they go by the table, bumping into stuff, falling over, jumping off beds. They have no business. They barely have any coordination. They jump off everything. Totally reckless. Still need your complete control. They're really helpless. If you left them alone, they'd probably get hurt really bad and or die. Now he's two years old and closely crouching upon his third year. And he has entered a very most, a stage that I think were, that correlates with the age of Christian whose motivation is for self only. He is in what I would call the possessive stage or the stage that everything is mine. In fact, one of the times that really alerted me to this fact is we were out in the yard And he noticed a big plane flying over. And he said, Dad, look, my airplane. (laughs) I said, really, that's your airplane? Yeah. Isn't it pretty? I said, yeah, it is pretty. And another one started trailing behind it. And I said, hey, look, son, is that my plane? He said, no, Dad, you don't have planes. (laughs) Okay. I remember that. We got him one of those little sponge bats, you know, with the, with the ball. He can still hit really hard with that, by the way. Um, he likes to play baseball. He can't really say it right. He calls it space ball. And so anytime we go by a, a field, any type of green field, a park or anything, he says, look, Dad, stop. It's my space ball field. <laughs> you got a lot of space ball fields around here, son. In essence, it's my world. Now, it's cute on a little kid, but it's ugly on us. My purpose as a parent is to shape his worldview over time into one that places him as a creature of God that has been made for the express purpose of bringing glory to his maker. I know that from the moment that he was born And every day I live with that fact that that is my charge from the living God. That's my purpose in his life. In greater fashion, we see our Heavenly Father displaying his love and power and purpose in caring for us. Look at verse 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also 
glorified. Notice his power. It's seen in numerous phrases in these two verses. First of all, we see his power in that he foreknew. One of the things about God is that he knows everything. He knows who you are. He knows who you were. And he knows what you will be someday. He knows everything. It is a part of his power, his ability. Second, we notice that he predestined. And that is that those of us who are in Christ Jesus have been called in him before the foundations of the world. And I know that blows your mind, and it blows mine too. For the simple fact that it is hard for the finite to comprehend that which is infinite. It's hard for us. We live in a world that starts and ends. The sun comes up, sun goes down. You wake up in the morning, and then you go back to bed in the evening. And you live, and then you die. That's our world. He called by his power. He justified. He glorified. In essence, all that he has done for us, Jesus as a whole, God as a person, has done everything for us that pertains to life and godliness. Look with me if you turn your Bible over to Ephesians chapter 2. I'll wait for you to turn there. I love the sound of rustling Bibles. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you know he made alive, excuse me, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. That's a good description of humanity. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not that of yourselves. It is a gift. Of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, someone might ask as we read this what part do I play in my salvation? It's kind of interesting if you think about it. What part do we play? It says that in his presence there will be no boasting. None of us who come to God will ever be able to say, well, you know, my brother over here was pretty bad, and I know that God did a lot of suffering for him, but um, probably didn't have to do too much for me. (laughs) No. There will be no bragging before the throne of heaven. 
all that he has done in salvation and bringing us to maturation as a person is completely his. It is owned by him. It is his possession. It is his power. A good story, I heard a good story that really illustrates this. I heard of a country fellow. You know, with me, it's always a country fellow. Uh, I'm sorry. It's, it's not really an accent. It's just what's on the inside coming out. I heard of a country fellow who was sharing his faith and gladly explained that he and God had been partners in his salvation. So one of the more knowledgeable men in the fellowship came over to the guy and questioned him and asked him, he said, how is it that you and God were partners in your salvation? This is an interesting, interesting idea to me theologically. And he said, well, sir, it was easy. I did the sinning and God did the saving. (laughs) He said, I did the running and God did the catching. (laughs) That's the way it is. No one seeks after God in our own self. We are called by Him. He has reached out to us. He has convicted us with His Spirit. And He draws us in. And He saves us and He cleanses us. And it is glorious and mysterious. I love what John Stott said in his commentary on Romans. And I believe that he offers the best explanation, even though the country fella did pretty good. He says, God's sovereignty never diminishes our responsibility. Instead, the two lie side by side in antonym... Excuse me. I've been trying to say this word all day. I've looked it up in different dictionaries, and for some reason I keep saying it wrong. I'll try it one more time, because we have to say it twice in this. The two lie side by side in an antonymy, which is an apparent contradiction between two truths. Unlike a paradox, it is not deliberately manufactured. It is forced upon us by the facts themselves. He goes on to quote J.I. Packer on this subject, and he says, We do not invent it. We cannot explain it, nor is there any way to get rid of it, save by falsifying the very facts that lead us to it. There have been great debates, and I have read dozens of books on this subject, and everyone is so convinced And the truth of the matter is that man is responsible to God and he will be judged accordingly. At the same time, God is totally sovereign. And in that we find a great mystery and yet it is very glorious. It is one of the great mysteries in this world. The mystery of God's salvation. Now we looked at his power. Let's look at his purpose. In verse 29, his purpose states that we are to be conformed to the image of his son. God is moving us on to maturity. Changing us to be like Jesus. Isn't that great? Don't you like that? He's not going to just leave us over here with a diaper in the hallway. But he moves us on to something greater, greater than anyone that we've ever seen, Jesus himself. What a reason to get up in the morning. He's taking everything that comes our way and uses it to grow us up in Christ. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that exciting to you? 
You can say amen. Okay. Nice pause. Okay. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Keep your finger here in Romans 8 and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Looking at verse 11, he says, And he himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of their deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into all things into him who is the head, Christ. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by whatever joint supplies according to the effective working by which each which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That's the purpose. That we grow up in Him. Not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by every slight and trickery of man, but that we come to the full stature, a man and a woman of God, who's able to discern the truth, able to live the truth. Bishop Anders Nygren, in his commentary on Romans, writes this. He says, Just as the present eon is to be followed by eternity, it has already been preceded by an eternity. Only when we see our present existence set in God's activity, which goes from eternity to eternity, do we get the right perspective. Then man comes to see that everything that comes to the Christian in this life, and consequently the sufferings of the present too, must work together for the good to him. It's truth. We understand that this is God's purpose for us personally. But it doesn't end there. Not only is God working out the good For you and me, changing us, taking us to a completely different level, giving us a new, unbelievable life. But the good that he is doing, his purpose, not only goes to us personally, but it extends far beyond us to encompass the whole heaven and earth for our good and for his glory. The pages of Scripture are filled with examples of this principle at work in the lives of God's people. First, you see a guy by the name of Moses herding sheep. Called by God, he knew that he had a heart and a desire to to lead his people out of bondage. He knew that it was a heavenly charge. And yet, in his own humanity and sinfulness, he murdered an Egyptian, buried him, and split the country. And it would seem that his life and his mission from God was over. Did God will him to kill the Egyptian? God wills no man to sin. And yet, God would even take 
something that drastic and horrible in his life and turn it into something good. He spent 40 years in the backside of a desert with a bunch of sheep. <laughs> Learning how to herd and to care for people in the wilderness. Learning how to care for sheep. Little idea did he know, I'm sure, that this would turn into something much greater because God once again called him and he becomes one of the leading figures in world history. Job, his suffering was not because of his sin. In fact, the scripture tells us that Job was a pretty good guy. When Satan had come before um, God in heaven, he said, have you considered my servant Job? He's upright in all his ways. And all of a sudden, Satan says, well, you know, if you let me touch his body, his family, he'll curse you to your face. And so Job, very righteous, good guy, comes under extreme circumstances, suffering under satanic attack. And in the beginning of the book, he says, in very non-pious, very truthful, realistic words of a servant of God, he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And at the end of the book, when he's completely wiped out and all of his friends have given him the worst advice in the world along with his wife, and finally God speaks to him and things are restored to him, he said, you know, I have heard of him, but now I have seen and I know and I'm in amazement and awe of God. There's Daniel taken into Babylon. What an interesting figure. He had unfortunate circumstances. He was captured, taken into captivity. He was a, a part of the elite youth in uh, Jerusalem, taken into captivity. And no one would think that being brought before a pagan king would ever turn out for good. And yet God had a plan that not only blessed Daniel, but it blessed a whole nation. God's plans go far beyond just you and me, and they go far outreaching, caring for others in ways that maybe you could never imagine. I think the best example we can think of is a guy by the name of Joseph. And we'll look at his life for a few minutes, and then we'll go back to the book of Romans. In Genesis 37, and you don't have to turn there because we're just going to be giving a rough overview of Genesis 37 through 40. You see, his early days at home, Joseph was a dreamer. He's somebody who didn't know how to make friends in the beginning with his brothers. Hey, guys, I had a dream the other night. Oh, really? Tell us about it. Well, you were all bowing down and uh, worshiping me. <laughs> hey, have you seen my new coat? Dad loves me best. He was the favored son. He had a very prominent upbringing. And he was very out of touch. But the vision that God had given him would one day be fulfilled. However, because of hatred and sin of his brothers, he was thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. His father, believing that he is dead, tore his garments and said, was, was just devastated. I wonder what Joseph was thinking when he was in the bottom of that pit. Well, you know, maybe some of these dreams that I'm having are not from God. 
And I wonder where God is in the midst of this. God, I thought that you gave me this revelation. And like the little ant sticking his hands up, what are you doing? I'm disappointed. That could have been the case with him. It's not stated in scripture, but it could have been the case. It could have been that way with any one of us. And you and I have been through circumstances that would cause us to question, where is God in the midst of this? And do you really, God, turn all things for the good? Do you really do that? From there, he gains some rights as a servant in his humility He works in Potiphar's house, and yet because of someone's lust and sin, he is falsely accused, even though he was streaking out from the room. It says that he ran out naked. That he was falsely accused, thrown into prison, and it seemed that things were getting worse. But at the right time, in the right place, God brought it to the mind of one of these men who went before the king. And he said, I have heard of a man who can tell dreams. And Daniel was brought before, and he gave glory to God, and he gave the interpretation of the dream, which was brilliant because it would save the nation, the whole land surrounding the nation, because a great famine was coming. You would have seven years of plentiful, seven years of famine. And you'd need a store up during those years. God gave him that wisdom and the king recognized him. And all of a sudden, he goes from the pit to the palace. He's a prince. God not only worked that out for his own personal good, but God used his servant to bring glory to himself on a national level. You and I, if we live in that lower plane, constantly asking the question, how will this affect me? We will never view the mountaintops. It's, the valley's beautiful. It's green. But it's, it's like we often hear the words from God, yeah, but come on up here. You will not believe the view from here. It is amazing. The view is amazing from God's perspective. And at the end of life, when when Jacob dies and he no longer is is the the, the patriarch, the sons are kind of freaked out. They don't know if if, uh, their brother's going to kill them, even though he uh, tortured them for a while but um, brought him to himself. He makes this great statement. I believe it sums this whole passage up. He says in Genesis 50, verse 18 through 20, Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face and said, Behold, we're your servants. Don't kill us. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. All the little bitty circumstances and the hurts and the discouragement and the pain and the jealousy and all of that sibling rivalry, which would seem insignificant and sinful and worthless, God will take his servant and mold it into something that will transform a nation. 
And I say that to you and I to, to bring encouragement, to note to us that God's plans are always best. God's plan for you and me goes far beyond the norm. God's plans are better for you than your own. And God's plans are for the greater good that goes far beyond our own personal interests. God didn't just put us here to make us happy. God put us here to bring glory to his name. We are little ants. Sorry. My view from here, you're kind of cockroaches. Not, not small as ants, kind of big. Is that offensive? I don't know. That is to say that we're just created by God. We were given life by Him. He is a unique, amazing God who tarries with His creation, who lends His hand of support and wants to do something with you that you could, that you could scarcely imagine that He would affect a world with someone like me or someone like you. Turn back to Romans chapter 8, and we'll begin to wrap this up. Looking in verse 31, we notice God's love for us now, his amazing love. In verse 31, he says, What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him so freely give us all things? True love is found in demonstration. You can say, I love you, I love you all day long. But if you never deliver the goods, it's not love. And God delivers the goods in such an amazing way. By this statement, he says, look. If this guy, this God, would not save his own son but delivered him to death for us, how is he going to hold back anything from us? All we can say to that is, amen, amen, or maybe, wow, amazing. That's his love. That's his commitment to us even now. In verse 33, he says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. One of the things that impede us in our Christian life is our own sense of guilt. Our own sense of knowing our our frailty and our sinfulness. How many of you struggle with that? We need more hands up on that. Okay, good. It's a good number. He says here, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? We know that Satan has the title the accuser of the brethren. In legal terms, he is known as what is a uh, agent provocateur. He goes out and he drums up business for the court and then he accuses the people. It's like going and getting a guy and saying, all right, buddy, here, have a couple of drinks before you drive home. And then once he starts off driving, he calls the cops. There's a fellow driving across the street over there. The sad thing about our sin is that usually we're not false accused when it comes to our own conscience. 
And if Satan brings an accusation against us or someone from our past and says, Oh, you think that you can change? I know you. You're rotten. You're just like me. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? I like to think of it this way. Say that you're in the street with the biggest, toughest guy that ever lived. Not the toughest guy on your street, but the toughest guy that ever lived. And you're standing with him and he just sort of towers above you right behind you. He walks along, you're walking along. Your bully comes around the corner and says, Ah, look at you. You think you're so good. Why are you hanging out with this squirmy, rotten sinner? Don't say that about my friend. Well, he's a sinner. Well, I've forgiven him. I've justified him. I've cleansed him. And I don't talk about it anymore. And I don't want you to either. And by the way, you're a sinner too. And I don't like you. Think about that. You and I are connected to the living God and He has done a great work in every one of us. And there is no one who is as powerful and has as much credibility as God who could ever bring an accusation against you. Imagine Satan coming and saying the truth about you. What about this? I saw this guy do that the other day. You mean to tell me you're going to forgive him? Look, Satan is a created being. He's not equal to God. He's in rebellion against God. And there is none greater than God. Therefore, none can bring an accusation that he can't put down. Isn't that awesome? Your sins, your problems, your past have been hidden in the biggest guy on the block. And he's not going to allow anyone to accuse you or to bring an accusation against you. Let's look at verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. This means that not even persecution, torture, or even death will separate us from God's love. Rotten things will happen to you and me in this world. You can bet on it. It's fallen. You may be persecuted for your faith. We have brothers and sisters, even now in other countries, who are being burned, beaten, and tortured for their faith in Christ. (coughs) But even torture and death never separates us from God's love. That's His love for us now. But let's look at His love for us forever in verse 37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded... That neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's forever. It goes beyond this world. And though for a short time we suffer, hey, it's just for a short time. 
as Paul said in verse 18 of this chapter, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. (coughs) It will not be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. I'll close with this story. A number of years ago, I was watching Christian television. It was actually a good show, believe it or not. (coughs) I wrote down the names, and I've lost it, and I looked on the Internet this last week to try to find the name of this person. So forgive me, but it it really happened. This is not a make-believe story. There was a woman who had developed a very debilitating disease. And she was a Christian. She went to churches. She had her pastor pray for her, the elders anoint her with oil. She had gone to faith healers. She had gone to the big arenas, the coliseums, and nothing had worked. So much so that she came to peace with that and even started going around and preaching on a circuit, teaching about when God doesn't heal. Well, one day, she was out on her ranch. She lived on a ranch, and there was a big tree that um, had a sort of a low-lying area where a lot of the, the cows would come and lay, and water would, would develop there, so there was mud and lots of manure. And her, her husband had placed a plank across there, and I don't know if she was walking on her with her walker or a cane, but somehow she slipped off and she went head first into the manure. Boom. And she said, as I lay there face down in the manure in total frustration, weeping, I said, Lord, this is my life face down in manure. And there's nothing I can do about it. I'm helpless. And she said for the first time, if she had ever heard God speak audibly, he said, yeah, but I'm right there with you in the manure. We are more than conquerors. Death, trouble, sickness, tribulation will never, never separate us from the love of God. And God will take all of those events and turn them in such a way that it's for our good, our growth, and for the good of this world, and ultimately for his glory. Now, if that doesn't excite you, I have nothing left to give you. Does that excite you? It should. The great thing is that it's not made up. It's in the Bible. By the way, I'll give you the rest of the story as Paul Harvey did. The gal was in a church meeting, and there was this young um, woman who was there who had just gotten saved a couple of weeks before. And uh, she came up to her and she said, I believe that God wants you healed. She was sitting in a wheelchair. And she's thinking, okay, great. Thanks, you know, little baby believer. Thanks. And uh, she said, can I pray for you? Yeah, okay. And she prays for her, and immediately she felt something go through her body, and she was healed. She stood up and began to weep, and her body was restored to her. And she said as she went to the bathroom and kind of put some water on her face, 
face. Truly, God, you are a mysterious God. His ways are past finding out, but his love is secure. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your great and amazing love. Thank you, Lord, that we have such a promise backed up by such a delivery on your word, by your actions. Lord, I pray that we would not just continue to live in complacency and just accept things the way that they are, but, Lord, that we would seek to move higher with you. Help us see the world as you do, Lord. Make each day count something special, something fantastic for your kingdom. We belong to you, and we were made for your glory, and we know it's true. Thank you, Lord, for tonight. Thank you for my brothers and sisters.